0: Thank you very much, and good afternoon to you. How are you doing? Great. Let's see if I can do anything about that. Um, So don't be put off by that big, long, long intro about traveling all over the world and all of that stuff. The truth is, for the last 12 months, I've been mainly in my front room, sort of gesticulating to the mirror. With my best sermons, all on my own. So, you know, it's okay. In fact, I was just saying um, the last preach just a while ago. Um, I had a good time there, by the way. It was absolutely amazing. The crowd, they, they were such a blessing to me. I don't know if anybody could top it. They, they were just They laughed at my jokes. Nobody threw anything at me. Nobody left early. Um, so, what was I saying again? I was saying that, um, I can't remember what I was saying. So, let me go on my sermon, because that was probably a better idea, um, that I was, I remember, I remember. So, I haven't really spoken much for the last, um, probably about the last ten months or something, uh, um. So the last time I was due to be here was in March and I couldn't quite make it. And you kindly brought me back. And I have actually had a time of relative quiet, um, deliberately so. I thought I'd stop shouting at people in public for a little while and just stop and listen and rest. And the research I'm doing, taking up a lot of my time. So I'm only saying that because I'm after the sympathy count because I'm just getting back into public preaching again after a long time. So if this doesn't work, You have to really be nice to me, really be nice to me. And also, I think what I'm doing today with you here over these three sessions, but here now, I'm not so much preaching, really. I think I'm more talking to myself. Uh, you, You know, one of the privileges of public speaking is that you can talk to yourself in public and still be applauded for it funny thing so this is really a sermon for me this is not so much shouting at you it's it's me trying to take take stock of something which i have to take stock of quite personally at this point in my own life and ministry and so i was talking with a a friend and a spiritual daughter just a few days back and here's a theme which came to me which was perfecting imperfection Um, if you're into writing sermon titles that's it So I have this habit of coming up with sermon titles and thinking, after I come up with the titles, what does that mean? I have no idea what I mean by that. So this is a journey, I think, in um, self-discourse as we try and unpack, as I say, one of the really important um, texts. Perfecting imperfection. So this is Isaiah chapter 6 which is going to go up on the screen, which you will know. It's one of the mega texts of scripture. Um, There are a few places in the book of Isaiah almost everybody knows if you've been in church for a few months or years. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. There are lots of questions about this text One of them is why Isaiah why Uzziah? Uzziah was a king, started out well, ended up bad, died of leprosy, economy going down, the whole kingdom imploding. And people are saying, okay, this was symbolic of the nation of Israel and therefore the need for restoration in Isaiah's ministry. Maybe. I don't I really don't know. The one thing I think is important though, this is about the year seven hundred and forty BC. The one thing which is important here is that Isaiah is putting down a Calendar mark. This is history. This is fact. This is true. This is me meeting God in human history, not a fairy tale. So the vision might be expansive and challenging and colorful as we will see, but what Isaiah is saying is, even if you don't get the details of my vision, you need to know this, it really happened. It happened in the same year that this bad dude died. My kids say dude, so I thought I'd say dude as well. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying and they were calling to one another holy 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 is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his glory one holy is holy two holy is holier than one three holy is really really holy you don't you don't find this expression anywhere else in the bible holy the the jews had a way of um, repeating to make emphasis they repeat like verily verily i say unto you Um, My mother used to do that, verily, verily, Joe, she would say, verily, verily, I want to tell you, and my mom said, verily, verily, I listen. Holy, holy, holy is Isaiah's way of saying, in this vision, the extremities... And the enormities and the bigness of God's holiness is really being underwritten here and underscored by this statement. The whole earth is full of it. Which is interesting because this is a bad time for Israel. Economy is going down. Isaiah lives with people of unclean lips. And everything around him is falling apart. But he says... The whole world is full of God's glory, which is useful to remember when you're watching the 10 o'clock news or six o'clock news. And somehow we have to have that Isaiah 2020 vision, things falling apart in Syria, things falling apart across Africa, Brexit in confusion. Uh, Okay, we won't make the list up because I'll end up talking about Trump and we don't want to do that. So... In the middle of all of this, the world is still filled with the glory of God. This is fantastic stuff. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. You can feel it, can't you? You can imagine. Anybody here ever been in an earthquake? Oh, yeah. I was in an earthquake tremor when I was about six or seven years old. I still remember it. My father taking me outside the house, and everything everywhere is moving. There's no, nothing still. Everything is moving. I think as I must have felt a kind of a the rumble of that in his vision, the, 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 the temple, the threshold itself was filled with smoke. And woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then, one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. I was just thinking about that in the other series. I'm thinking, okay, so what did Isaiah actually see? Because if he's got Two wings covering his eyes, and two wings covering his feet, and two wings flying. What does he do? Does he fly with one wing? To the Gets hold of life cold. <laughs> Here you are! Oh, I don't know. Does he take away one wing from one eye? And the other wing flies, and the other thing, I don't know. I'm a school kid still, as you can see. That's why my kids bring me the grandkids to play with all the time. But there's this vivid thing of an an angel applying a live coal from an altar and with it, verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Well, the thing is, you see, not everybody has this kind of epiphany every day. You don't meet this kind of dramatic encounter with God on a daily basis in the scriptures. And one of the reasons I'm quite happy with the idea that Isaiah chapter 6 belongs where it is, as opposed to the beginning of the book, which some scholars suggest should be the case because Isaiah 6 is his commissioning, I'm happy for it to be here, right here. Because an encounter with God breaks up the ordinariness of our coexistence with God. Most of us coexist with God. We, we know he's there. We know he knows we're here and we're getting on with it. Ever so often there is a th- There is a theophany, there is a breaking through of God. There is a recognition that God is in history. In fact, God is in my history. And then there is an unveiling. But it's okay because I think this unveiling of God in Isaiah chapter 6 as opposed to chapter 1 doesn't suggest that what we have now is a perfect product called Isaiah. He's going to mess up again and again I became a Christian when I was about I can't remember it may have been 10 I remember it was a it was an epiphany I met with God so profoundly and the bigness of God's appearance to me was absolutely overwhelming um It's my party story, but I won't tell you because you probably don't want to know. Okay. So, we were in this convention. It's the only joke I know. We were in this convention, a big conference, when I was a little kid. And I was sat next to a guy called Bunny. I'd never met Bunny before. Bunny and I were having a whale of a time, you know, just misbehaving as much as we could. It was such fun. Adults tried to stop it, tried to get us to behave silly people. Anyway, it was real fun. And then there was the preaching on this day. I have no idea what the preacher said, but Bunny and I had a bit of a thing. So Bunny said to me, the last one to respond to the appeal, you know, anybody want to accept Jesus? Please come now, we'll pray for you, that kind of stuff. So Bunny said, Last one to the altar is a monkey. And I thought, Hey, I'm a black kid in the 1960s. I have enough problems. I don't want to be a monkey as well. So after three, one, two, three, boom, I was there. I knelt down at the altar. So I was kneeling at the altar. <laughs> I did that. No bunny. No bunny. I'm thinking, where's bunny? So I look over my left shoulder, and there's bunny in the front seat, laughing his head off. And I'm just about to get up to deal with bunny, if you understand me. And then just behind bunny, I saw my mother. <laughs> and my mom was doing a thing like this Thank you, Lord. <laughs> so look. If your mum does that, you stay. (laughs) You, You stay. So I stayed. And then what happened was, don't ask me to explain it, but this overwhelming sense of sin and guilt and the need for forgiveness was absolutely captivating. In fact, I bawled. I cried, and I cried, and I cried. When I was finished crying, this conference session was over. Everybody had gone to lunch. And I can still remember, at the age of whatever I was, getting up from that altar and feeling like a feather. I Literally, I mean it. Feeling as light as a feather. Although God had taken from me the whole sin of the world. I was just a kid. No big sin, no bank robberies. You know, not the mm. Occasional white lie and not doing what my mum said, which was big enough. But, you know. But did I stop? No. When I was in my 11, 12 at secondary school, I started nicking stuff out of Woolies. I did. I was, in, I was in church on a regular basis. I was in the junior choir. I was playing my mouth organ and doing my little recitations and my little mini speeches before the congregation but I was still going to Woolies and nicking stuff on a regular basis. I don't think Isaiah, after he saw God in all his holiness, was perfect. That's the point I'm trying to make. But what happens with people who encounter God, encounters God like this, is always very interesting. Moses experienced it at the burning bush. The apostles experienced this. At the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter, Mark chapter 9, they have these three things in common generally, epiphanies, first people are terrified, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his robes filled the temple and they were the angels and they were crying holy, they were using language I didn't understand language which should have been foreign to my lips. And they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And then I saw me and I thought, oh man, I'm in trouble. So people are overwhelmed. And secondly, they are aware of God's immense holiness. God's immense and infinite morality. And thirdly, In that place, they're commissioned to go and do something. I don't get that. I don't know why God doesn't put me on probation after an encounter like that. Why God doesn't say, well, you've just met me high and lifted up. I'm a bit different from you. You're never going to get to this kind of holiness. Why don't you go and rest up for a couple of years? Then let's do business when I can trust you. I don't know why I don't know why he doesn't do that. That's what I would do. But in that very space of encounter and terror and otherness, God says, Do you I've got a job. I want I've got a job. I've got I want somebody to do something. I want somebody to fill a gap. I don't understand that, ladies and gentlemen. I find it embarrassing. But that's what he seems to do again. And again. This is Isaiah. Woe is me. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, put it this way I am dissolved. <laughs> you know those pills, those tablets you put in water, they got the fizzy things. Pss, gone. That's what he was saying. I am dissolved, I am neutralized. I am just absolutely wasted in the presence of God. I am just so wasted. A. W. Tozer, the great theologian, Christian commentator, said, "God is as as high above a caterpillar as He is an archangel." And that's something. There's no variant. There's no. Measurement once you're talking about something other than God, there are no variables to be considered. It's the Martin Buber's I and thou, I am here, you are there. The holiness of God, which separates him from every other entity. And so, what can happen is this holiness of God, this otherness of God, this uh, pure morality. And power can debilitate me, can distance me from God. So I used to play the guitar. And I have a guitar. I have I have a Gibson Les Paul in my house. What have we got here? Hmm. Yeah, these are okay. Yeah, yeah, they're all right. I've got a Gibson Les Paul. <laughs> which doesn't mean much to you, I know, but I feel good saying it. It's a nice guitar. I don't play it. I haven't played it for 20 years. And So it looks at me, and I look at it, and we have this great relationship in the front room. <laughs> and so often, so often, I want to pick it up, you know. Because, gentlemen and ladies, I can still hear the sounds in my head that I would make if only I had a guitar plugged into an amplifier. I can hear the bends and the runs. And then I hear Brian May from Queen do a solo lick, or one of my favorite bands um, playing an incredible run, or an old tune from Jimi Hendrix, my old hero, Red House doesn't have to be anything for you but I enjoy just saying it and when I hear a a real pro playing I want to put my guitar away forever just too good the distance is too great I tell you what the holiness of God can actually distance us cognitive dissonance that gap between what we know and what we feel or how we are attached to what we know intellectually cognitive dissonance God is holy, I am here. I hear it and I see it in a lot of churches. People who are singing songs of power and greatness and holiness. But the truth is, in your eye and in your heart, something else is going on. I sometimes think to myself, what would happen if in the middle of a lot of the songs we sing, the worship band suddenly stopped? just suddenly stopped how much singing there would actually be in the crowd. Because I think a lot of Christians are experiencing this. I see God, I have an idea intellectually of God, but actually my reality is way, way, way away from that. And the more I think about God, the more I actually think, what's the point, really? I'm never going to catch up with him. It can be terrifying, it can be debilitating, it can actually be downright lazy, I think that's a danger. But God is so far from me in who he is that there is really little point in me making an effort. He's just out of range in holiness. He's just out of range in power and purity. Why bother if I'm never going to make it? Why should God engage with my imperfections because he is so perfect? Well, the thing is, this is the very antithesis of god 's holiness and His power and his availability it 's not what God is about. God doesn 't want to push us away it 's not a competition. It's not a hundred meter sprint. He doesn't want to win you in a race. He doesn't want to beat you in the third round. He wants to be available to me. Because his perfection is an entity in itself, but it is also precisely the means of my perfection. And my vulnerability and my imperfection are actually magnets to his perfection, not the basis for his repulsion. So I was thinking this morning in our first session, because I hadn't thought about it before. It's a bit like um, a big power station, you know. Uh, but with no connections to anything, just humming away powerfully. What's the point? What's the point of that? It's like the sun without any other, const, any other, anything else in its solar system. Just the sun, just burning away by itself. What's the point of that? So God is entirely independent, but not. So theologically, you might want to go and write an essay about this after lunch today. You may not, but the question is, is God complete without you? Because he could be, you know... um, so he could have made everything that exists and then he could say, I'll give these human people 10,000 years to play with them. And so then 10,000 years of human idiosyncrasies and disobedience and madness uh, and unholiness and then bam, gone, finish. No more, No more people, just God. God could have God-time for eternity, me-time forever, without a pesky person in sight. But he's not going to do that. That's not the program. The idea is, get us where he finds us, and moving us from one degree of glory to the next incremental perfection, incremental. Till one day, and the old song, I will behold him face to face. You know that old tune. You may not, but you can still get to heaven if you don't. It's that final place where the perfecting process. But in the meantime, here we are. And it is in that place of vulnerability, the holiness and the power and the self-sufficiency of God, which faces me and then pulls me in to make a difference in me and to me. Not repulsing. Many of us subconsciously behave as if God is repulsed by everything we do. He may be disappointed, he feels the pain of it. He doesn't shortchange the gravity of sin and sinfulness. But he doesn't suddenly go, oh man, you're a mess. Just give me some time away from you. Just give me a week to recover. You've messed up again. Can't take it right now. Just, you know, let me go talk to some other people and I'll be back. You know, a bit like going to see your surgeon. Okay, you're here today. Um, One request, please. No. His perfection is here for my imperfection. And it's in the place of vulnerability that we see God doing his best work in us. Isaiah has the coals. Applied to his lips. And it is in that moment that he knows something of what it means to be close to the power and holiness of God. I was wondering about this this lip thing. What happened to the sacrifice? What happened to the high priest and the temple? What happened to the ox and the blood? What happened to all that sacrificial system? Is he nullifying it? Is he putting it aside? Is he undermining it? No. Isaiah is taking us to something very deep. Because out of the substance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I would have thought that the coal from the fire would be applied to the heart or the mind or something. But no, to the lip. Why the lip? It's... It's not the sacrificial system Isaiah wants to talk to us about here. It's the process of refining. They would have been really at home with this image. The refiner's fire. It's a different kind of process altogether from the, the sacrificial work in the temple and the offering of the turtle dove and the giving of something to get absolution from God going through the priest. Isaiah, Isaiah's done a shortcut to the human condition here. He's done a New Testament short circuiting of the human condition. He goes right to the heart of the matter. And the coals of fire is about the refining process. And they would have been familiar with this. The refiners fire in which you dip raw metal of gold or raw metal of silver and the Refiners fire, drains away the dross which comes to the surface as rubbish. And then he goes in with the tongue and he pulls out pure gold. That's what Isaiah is after here. That God wants to draw me close enough to again and again, even after the gold has become overlaid with stuff, to take me back and make me user friendly, to make me fellowship friendly with himself. One of the seraphims flew to me with a live coal, and with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I was on a family holiday this week, just gone and I was a bit perplexed about this colon tongue. Why not colon heart or brain or something? And so I asked my kids, what do you guys make of this? So (laughs) my son googled the question for an in-depth theological response. My daughter had actually beaten him to it. They both googled. They both came up with the same text. Um, Which I would have thought about before, you understand? Just so as we're clear. This is Malachi 3. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify and the purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, refine them like gold and silver. Malachi 3 verses 2 and 3. This is Jesus obviously. This is the catalyzing place. Think of this as speech therapy. Jesus comes to the heart of the human condition as the refiner, dealing with the muck and the dross and the rubbish, allowing it to surface and disappear in order that God can pull us out of vulnerability, pull us out, refined and better than we went in. Jesus, refining fire. Let me put it this way. Speech is the summary of the soul. And what I say is the exposure of who I am and who I am becoming. That's why the lip thing is important. Out of the abundance or the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Romans tells us, if anyone confesses, believes in their heart and confess the Lord Jesus you will be saved. There is this interrelationship between values of the heart, the condition of the heart, and what emerges from our lips. Inevitably, this is the case. And therefore, there's a kind of a reverse action here. I'm going to touch your lips because this is symbolic of the work I am already doing inside you. Inside out. Not just outside in. This is... God getting the best from us. Here's my final thing. People who meet with God as Isaiah did are overwhelmed by God. They feel a sense of their own inadequacy and vulnerability. Sometimes it happens with a great vision like Isaiah's. Sometimes it happens in a preach. Bam, wow. What? Sometimes it's a song, a verse. Sometimes it's a friend over coffee. Just the right word at the right time and God landed on my planet over coffee. Sometimes it's the silence of being alone, digging up worms in a garden and suddenly God, turns up. He often does that for me. Often does that for me. I've gone on wonderful retreats to listen to the Lord for a week. Don't not do this if this is what God does for you. Off for a week, I hear the Lord and I come back with a great revelation. I've tried that. It doesn't work for me. And the last time I came back to the Evangelical Alliance with a vision God had clearly given me after a week of retreat And they just ripped it to shreds. And they were right to. Because I'd gone off on one in my own imagination. But sometimes just digging up in the garden and probably killing plants which should not die because I have no idea what I'm doing. God shows up and just says, here, look at me, look at me properly. And then comes this. The sense of commissioning. Do you want to put verse 8 up for me, guys? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Um, Send me, send me. So here's my last word. You don't have to be perfect. You just need to be perfectly available. You want to try that last verse with me? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying,